1: Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash TalkAwayTheDark.
0: Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Thanksgiving holiday is come and gone, and we knew going in our region might be at risk for a spike in COVID numbers. That is, as many people would choose to gather in groups for the holiday. And Illinois is already facing a major surge. The state reported another 12,000 cases of the virus on Thanksgiving with 131 deaths. So what can we do to protect ourselves and others from the virus during this time? And what should we keep in mind as we head into the holiday season? Joining us now, as she does every Friday to answer your COVID-19 questions, is Dr. Mia Terramina. Hey, Justin. All right, how, how, how worried are you about a Thanksgiving surge?
1: I'm absolutely worried. I mean, even the statistics in all of the surveys of individuals leading into the holiday basically showed that, you know, upwards of 50 percent of of people had no plans to change their Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. plans. So while I know we all have friends and family close to us that did take part in those alternative and scaled down Thanksgiving festivities, there are certainly many people who chose to continue to gather in groups.
0: Yeah, and that's a concern. Even if people are taking uh, socially distanced measures and and wearing masks, things like that, there's still a concern that even any group getting together is going to have
1: some sort of spread. Absolutely. We know at this point that gathering indoors, especially unmasked, uh, if uh, there's no social distancing and numbers higher than uh, around uh, eight to 10 or six to 10 indoors is going to be the, the greatest risk. And, you know, this is where we're going to start to see several days after Thanksgiving that individual who, you know, felt completely fine on Thanksgiving, you know, now develops symptoms, gets tested and is positive. And that, you know, contagious window included Thanksgiving dinner with friends and family we'll start to see some of that aftermath in the next one to two weeks. And
0: that's going to have a profound impact on how we view the holidays coming up, whether it's Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever you celebrate. That's going to be the next wave, meaning you're going to have people in two weeks. You're going to see a surge, a Thanksgiving surge, and it's going to have a definite impact on how we plan for those holidays.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, certainly having a coronavirus as a result of gathering over Thanksgiving does not necessarily give us a free pass over the winter holidays and Christmas holidays and Hanukkah holidays if people, quote unquote, recover by that point. Because, you know, as contacts with family members go on and we have this potential incubation period, there's sort of a, you know, kind of a prolonged possibility of, you know, being exposed from one contagious relative to another contagious friend Mm -hmm. or relative, and we could have this can, you know sort of wipe out our entire end of uh, december holidays here
0: you know and when we think about what that means all of this and, and and i keep trying to tell with my family and everything is it's not necessarily about preventing yourself from getting covid it's about trying to mitigate the spread because of our hospitals because of that that's what being a, a functioning <laughs> member of society is all about to to help our community Are you concerned about that part? I mean, where are we when we come to? Because last week when we talked, we were talking about hospital surges and capacities and beds and things like that. It's been a week. Are you still concerned about where we're at when it comes to Illinois capacity?
1: Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about, there's over 6,000 inpatients with coronavirus right now and almost 700 of them statewide in intensive care settings. This is huge. This is not influenza. In a typical flu season, we've never seen numbers like this. So this is something unique. This is something that is stretching our hospitals to capacity. And part of the issue is us docs sitting in the doctor's lounge kind of talk about the fact that we just can't get patients out of the hospital. It's not that they're necessarily... necessarily critical. And we do Mm -hmm. have many critical patients. We just have patients that continue to have oxygen requirements that necessitate an inpatient stay. And that stay is lasting five, seven, ten days or more. And, you know, we we don't have room. So that's where we have to start to talk about our contingency plans, which could include cohorting patients, putting two patients in one room, or using alternative spaces, or in some cases, even tent-like temporary structures in our hallways or whatever is needed to sort of be ready to accommodate the possibility of really stretching beyond capacity.
0: Has that changed since the pandemic began back in April and March? Were hospital stays, uh, have they changed since COVID has taken over?
1: And we certainly had prolonged hospital stays back then as well, um, more in the intensive care setting. Our management has changed where, you know, we try to avoid putting patients on ventilators until absolutely necessary. So because of that fact, we've expanded our floor capacity to be able to see patients with, you know, much higher oxygen requirements for much longer periods of time. So, you know, that aspect has changed. You know, the unfortunate reality is, is we sort of lost patients sooner in their course and And, you know, we don't want to lose more patients. We had another 130 plus lives lost uh, in Illinois, and these numbers are are just not acceptable. We need to continue to do the best we can to keep our friends and neighbors safe. And the argument that it has a quote unquote relatively low death rate, which I agree, it's the prolonged and protracted illness rate and the morbidity and mortality that, you know, 10% or so of our patients experience that Mm -hmm. we need to really
0: be mindful of. Well, that that argument about uh, death versus hospitalization, a lot of it has to do with the, the fact that the medical community and hospitals and doctors like yourself have caught up to what some of those treatments are to help people who are in those dire situations to be hospitalized.
1: Absolutely. And now we have uh, some access to some of the monoclonal antibody therapies that have been approved by the FDA in order to potentially keep patients with serious risk factors who do not necessarily require hospitalization. Perhaps they can be given medications and therapeutics like this to prevent a hospitalization. We're also working on really honing in on some supplements and other over-the-counter medications that can be used potentially to mitigate some of the symptoms as an outpatient and possibly even in a prophylactic or early use and, you know, seeing if we can keep people out of the hospital.
0: Yeah. We'll open up the phones now. Let's go to Andrew, who's standing by in Albany Park. Andrew, welcome to Reset.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on. I have a four-year-old daughter who's been going to half-day preschool Monday through Fridays, and we're considering keeping her home for the next, you know, maybe even two months with all these holiday people getting together, et cetera. I was wondering if we should do that. And the second part of this is if we were to send her in, would there be any advantage to having her go two or three times a week as opposed mm-hmm. to full time? Like, does it really make a difference? Wow. Great what question,
0: Andrew. What do you think, Doc?
1: Yeah, these, these are great questions. You know, my daughter has been in a sort of DQ environment, which has expanded to have school-age pods to facilitate e-learning. And there's ongoing conversations about closures that could potentially be a proactive strategy uh, because, you know, these kids and families continue to gather and continue to travel in spite of recommendations otherwise. So, you know, we are in the stretch of time where we could have a higher risk of these kids becoming infected between the holidays coming up over the next month or so. And it's not unreasonable if you have the capacity to continue to consider keeping these kids home. That's not an unreasonable strategy. Strategy. Daycares need to stay open and will stay open as best as they can through this time because they are an essential service. And you know, certainly folks like myself who are uh, essential workers need to have that outlet. As far as reducing the frequency, sure, anytime your child is in a, a group setting less frequently then more frequently, there is that possibility of a less uh, lesser chance of an exposure. That being said, our daycare facilities are really using top-notch strategies with cleaning and it's amazing how compliant these little mm. kids are with mask wearing. So they're doing the best they can and it is a reasonably safe environment with mitigation strategies in place.
0: Yeah, one of the byproducts for sure of this pandemic is they clean cleaning these schools. <laughs> That's a good thing. Uh, let's go from the Northwest Side and Albany Park to the southeast side in Pullman. Let's bring Phoebe in. Phoebe, welcome to Reset.
1: Hello. Thank you both for your excellent reporting. Um, So I did not travel for Thanksgiving, but I'm going back to campus out of state in January. And I'm wondering if we've seen any differences between flying versus taking the train. Mm. Because ordinarily I'd take Amtrak, where my sense is that I'll be exposed to a lot fewer people, but it is a much longer span of time that I will be exposed to those people.
0: That's a great question, Phoebe. Thanks for the call.
1: Yeah, Phoebe, that is a great question. We've had some pretty favorable numbers coming from the airline industry, and it has to do with the you know continuous recirculation of air and the adherence to mask wearing. So certainly most people who are going to be traveling by plane, and you can pretty much get anywhere in this country in four hours or so, so I, I don't think that it is as dramatically severe of a risk as it is to be you know on a train for a very prolonged period of time too, which would absolutely include how many. Many people are on that train, and if there's any opportunities to, you know, kind of get off the train and circulate the air a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think both have risks. So mask wearing, hand washing, you know, the travel times getting through the airport right. are a concern as well, um, more so than the actual flight.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's it. You could talk about all the technology you want on the plane. It's about standing in line for security exactly. at O'Hare or or Amtrak as well. I mean, if you're at Union Station, things like that. That there's there's different you know, places where people gather indoor that you got to think about. Thanks for the call, Phoebe. Let's head out to Morton Grove. Andrew's on the line. Uh, Andrew, welcome to Reset. Hi, thank you. Uh, So my question is, uh, my parents are in the late 80s, and they both tested positive this week after having uh, mild symptoms last week. I'm wondering how long it will likely take before we can feel like they're safe from getting worse symptoms.
1: And I'm wondering what to tell my siblings, who will probably take this as a way to loosen precautions with them.
0: Uh, Dr. Termina? Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh boy. You know that that's a, a lot. First of all, I hope your parents do well. Usually, if they started with their symptoms over a week ago, this is the sweet spot of when, if things are going to worsen, they tend to worsen. It's usually that second week, or you know, around days six, seven, eight, nine, ten. In that part, now your parents just testing positive this past week, even though they had symptoms sooner than that. As an out of an abundance of caution, I would regard their test day as day one, and they need to stay isolated at least 10 days. And in our seniors, we sometimes say 20 days out of an abundance of caution because they can sometimes shed active virus a little bit longer than a younger population or a non-immunocompromised population. This is not a free pass for your your siblings and for extended family members to interact with your parents, you know, without masks on and uh, without social distancing. While it is true that most people who have coronavirus will develop some protective antibodies, the last thing we want is to bring additional germs to someone who's just recovering from coronavirus. Even if they're feeling well and not breathing and not requiring oxygen and not having any breathing difficulties, they still could have a pneumonia. And getting something like influenza or another virus on top of a recent COVID could potentially be life-threatening. So please be respectful, be mindful, and let's take care of our seniors.
0: I read somebody uh, somebody on Facebook last night talked about that double whammy, the COVID and the flu at the same time for, for exactly. one, of their siblings, or one of their relatives. Uh, I love the pattern of these calls because we started in Albany Park, went down to Pullman, then we went back to Morton Grove, and now we're coming back to the south side to Hyde Park. Aaron's on the line. Aaron, welcome to Reset.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. I've got a question about how policies are getting applied across public versus private schools. So it seems like several of the private schools are still being able to be open and that's potentially inconsistent with the guidelines for the city and and isn't that just increasing disparity across the community
0: thanks for the call andrew
1: yeah, Andrew, you know, we could, we could have conversations for hours about uh, schooling. And I will say, even as an infection specialist, I have maintained my status that our priority should be keeping our kids in school as much as possible yeah. and as safely as possible. And we absolutely are going to have disparities on the basis of socioeconomic levels and everything else in terms of, you know, facilitating getting these kids back in school, which just breaks my heart. You know, the recommendations that come through in the state are, you know, even with the surges and parameters and different metrics that are being used, at the end of the day, individual school districts have the final say. So they can determine if it is safe enough according to their metrics and their setup to allow these kids to be back in school in any capacity. And, you know, for the most part, kids in these private and parochial schools do have access to full-time in-person. And there is the unfortunate reality that that some of that has to do with Mm -hmm. tuition. You know, if we don't have tuition-paying individuals, these schools are at risk foreclosure and losing some of their funding, unlike the public schools. Yeah. Um, so so there is a disparity across the board. But fortunately, what we are seeing and we have to focus on is there's not a lot of lateral spread of this virus in schools. Yes, kids get sick. Yes, teachers get sick. But the vast majority of them are getting sick by exposures outside of the schools. And, you know, within the schools with mask wearing and social distancing, we are seeing a tremendous amount of success.
0: Yeah, there you go. And obviously, we heard from the CPS saying that they're going to open back up in January, and February. So they're following that guidance in that science as well. Before we uh, go back to the calls, the vaccines. So mm-hmm. we saw last week and, and at the beginning of this week, just more companies coming online saying the trials look good. We're going to get this out to the American people as fast as we can. What's your thought on distribution? Because we, we've, been, we've been told like there's going to be this many, and then it came down to much less uh, percentage of available. And we we're told it's going to be frontline responders. And there seems to be a lot of mixed messaging when it comes to the distribution of vaccines.
1: Sure. It's a huge, huge task. I mean, there's definitely, you know, millions of doses of vaccines that are ready to be distributed. And we're looking at around mid-December, the 11th, 12th, about that ballpark. But even then, I don't know uh, if myself as a frontline worker, if that means on December 12th, I'm going to be able to be Mm -hmm. vaccinated. I hope that it's by the end of the year. So I think that the frontline workers and nursing home patients need to be at the top of the list. And when I say frontline workers, I don't necessarily mean just patient care individuals. There are certainly folks that work in industries that are very needed on the front lines that are going to be very close to the top of the list to receiving these vaccines as well. It looks like Pfizer's vaccine is going to be one of the the first to be distributed. Moderna is going to be shortly afterwards. We've had some ups and downs in the reporting from AstraZeneca's vaccine in the dosing and administration with some hiccups along the way. But, you know, part of the issue, too, with Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines are the storage necessities at these really, really cold temperatures. And because of that, you know, we can't necessarily distribute to a site that doesn't have the capacity to store these properly. So that all needs to be taken into account as well. So it's going to be quite the feat with certainly some bumps along the way. But once we can get the ball rolling, we can, you know, vaccinate just tens of thousands and onward and upward as we approach the end of the year.
0: All right, let's get one more call in real quick here. Let's get Ken, who's in Springfield. Ken, welcome to Reset. Hey, how are you guys doing today? Good, good. What's What's your question for Dr. Taramina? So my question is, I'm a pharmacist, actually, and I get calls almost daily now of patients asking for different over-the-counter therapies that could be used to kind of mitigate some of the symptoms they're having. From my kind of preliminary search, there wasn't too much data, and you kind of touched on some of the -the over-the-counter therapies we could be using. I was wondering if you could just go into some of them, please. Great. Thank you so much for the call. Quickly there, Dr. Patermina.
1: Yeah, accrediting a collaboration here at DuPage Medical Group, we actually came forward with an outpatient strategy involving using vitamin C, iron, vitamin D, famotidine, which is over-the-counter pepcid. Mm -hmm. And then where the strongest data is, it is with the use of aspirin. All of those things, even at over-the-counter availability, please discuss with your doctor regarding use of any of these medications, even over-the-counter medications, so that we can make sure that they don't interact with your regular meds and that they're at safe doses. But there are several Uh, that are being used
0: and that's reset for today we'll be back on monday that's the uh end of my tenure here at wbez as the host of interim of course coming up Susie ann has got you next week and then sasha ann simons will be the permanent host taking over in a couple weeks very happy to have her i'm looking forward to listening to her as the host of reset i'm justin kaufman thanks for listening we'll check you back here tomorrow